0: section 31 of the natural history volume 7 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the natural history volume 7 by pliny the elder translated by john bostock and henry thomas riley section 31 book 36 chapters 21 to 24 Chapter 21 The Temple of Diana at Ephesus. The most wonderful monument of Grecian magnificence, and one that merits our genuine admiration, is the Temple of Diana at Ephesus, which took one hundred and twenty years in building, a work in which all Asia joined. A marshy soil was selected for its site, in order that it might not suffer from earthquakes, or the chasms which they produce. On the other hand, again, that the foundation of so vast a pile might not have to rest upon a loose and shifting bed. Layers of trodden charcoal were placed beneath, with fleeces covered with wool upon the top of them. The entire length of the temple is 425 feet and the breadth 225. The columns are 127 in number and 60 feet in height, each of them presented by a different king. Thirty-six of these columns are carved and one of them by the hand of Scopus. Tricifron was the architect who presided over the work. The great marvel in this building is how such ponderous architraves could possibly have been raised to so great a height. This, however, the architect effected by means of bags filled with sand, which he piled up upon an inclined plane until they reached beyond the capitals of the columns. Then, as he gradually emptied the lower bags, the architraves insensibly settled in the places assigned them. But the greatest difficulty of all was found in laying the lintel which he placed over the entrance doors. It was an enormous mass of stone, and by no possibility could it be brought to lie level upon the jams which formed its bed, in consequence of which the architect was driven to such a state of anxiety and desperation as to contemplate suicide. Wearied and quite worn out by such thoughts as these, during the night, they say, he beheld in a dream the goddess in honor of whom the temple was being erected, who exhorted him to live on, for that she herself had placed the stone in its proper position. And such, in fact, the next morning, was found to be the case, the stone apparently having come to the proper level by dint of its own weight. The other decorations of this work would suffice to fill many volumes, but they do not tend in any way to illustrate the works of nature. Chapter 22. Marvels Connected with Other Temples There still exists, too, at Xycus, a temple of polished stone, between all the joints of which the artist has inserted a thread of gold, it being his intention to erect an ivory statue of Jupiter within, with Apollo in marble crowning him. The result is that the interstices quite glisten with their fine hair-like threads, and the reflection of the gold, obscured as it is, gently falling upon the statues, besides proclaiming the genius of the artist, heightens their effect, and so teaches us to appreciate the costliness of the work. Chapter 23. The Fugitive Stone. The Sevenfold Echo. Buildings erected without the use of nails. In the same city also, there is a stone, known as the fugitive stone, the Argonata, who used it for the purposes of an anchor, having left it there. This stone, having repeatedly taken flight from the Prytanium, the place so-called where it is kept, it has been fastened down with lead. In this city also, near the gate which is known as the trachea, there are seven towers, which repeat a number of times all sounds that are uttered in them. This phenomenon to which the name of echo has been given by the Greeks, depends upon the peculiar conformation of localities, and is produced in valleys more particularly. At Zycus, however, it is the effect of accident only, while at Olympia it is produced by artificial means, and in a very marvelous manner, in a portico there which is known as the heptaphonon from the circumstance that it returns the sound of the voice seven times. At Zycus also, is the bulletarium, a vast edifice constructed without a nail of iron, the raftering being so contrived as to admit of the beams being removed and replaced without the use of stays. A similar thing, too, is the case with the Sablesian Bridge at Rome, and by this enactment on religious grounds, there having been such difficulty experienced in breaking it down when Horatius Cocles defended it. Chapter 24 Marvelous buildings at Rome, 18 in number. But it is now time to pass on to the marvels in building displayed by our own city, and to make some inquiry into the resources and experience that we have gained in the lapse of 800 years, and so prove that here as well the rest of the world has been outdone by us, a thing which will appear, in fact, to have occurred almost as many times as the marvels are in number, which I shall have to enumerate. If, indeed, all the buildings of our city are considered in the aggregate, and supposing them, so to say, all thrown together in one vast mass, the united grandeur of them would lead one to suppose that we were describing another world accumulated in a single spot, not to mention, among our great works, the Circus Maximus, that was constructed by the dictator Caesar, one stadium in width and three in length. And occupying with the adjacent buildings no less than four jugera, with room for two hundred and sixty thousand spectators seated, am I not to include the number of our magnificent constructions, the Basilica of Paulus with its admirable Phrygian columns, the Forum of the late Emperor Augustus, the Temple of Peace erected by the Emperor Vespasian Augustus, some of the finest works that the world has ever beheld, the roofing too of the vote-office that was built by Agrippa? Not to forget that, before his time, Valerius of Ostia, the architect, had covered in a theatre at Rome at the time of the public games celebrated by Libo? We behold with admiration pyramids that were built by kings when the very ground alone that was purchased by the dictator Caesar for the construction of his forum cost one hundred millions of sesterces? If, too, an enormous expenditure has its attractions for anyone whose mind is influenced by monetary considerations be it known to him that the house in which Claudius dwelt who was slain by Milo was purchased by him at the price of 14,800,000 sesterces a thing that for my part i look upon as no less astounding than the monstrous follies that have been displayed by kings and then As to Milo himself, the sums in which he was indebted amounted to no less than seventy millions of sesterces, a state of things to be considered, in my opinion, as one of the most portentous phenomena in the history of the human mind. But it was in those days, too, that old men still spoke in admiration of the vast proportions of the agar, and of the enormous foundations of the capital, of the public sewers, too, a work more stupendous than any." as mountains had to be pierced for their construction, and, like the Hanging City, which we recently mentioned, navigation had to be carried on beneath Rome, an event which happened in the adelship of Marcus Agrippa after he had filled the office of council. For this purpose, there are seven rivers, made by artificial channels, to flow beneath the city. Rushing onward like so many impetuous torrents, They are compelled to carry off and sweep away all the sewage, and swollen as they are by that vast accession of pluvial waters, they reverberate against the sides and bottom of their channels. Occasionally, too, the Tiber, overflowing, is thrown backward in its course, and discharges itself by these outlets. Obstinate is the contest that ensues within the meeting tides, but so firm and solid is the masonry that it is enabled to offer an effectual resistance. Enormous as are the accumulations that are carried along above, the work of the channels never gives way. Houses falling spontaneously to ruins, or leveled with the ground by conflagrations, are continually battering against them. The ground, too, is shaken by earthquakes every now and then. And yet, built as they were in the days of Tarquinius Priscus, 700 years ago, these constructions have survived, all but unharmed. We must not omit, too, To mention one remarkable circumstance, and all the more remarkable from the fact that the most celebrated historians have omitted to mention it. Tarquinius Priscus, having commenced the sewers and set the lower classes to work upon them, the laboriousness and prolonged duration of the employment became equally an object of dread to them, and the consequence was that suicide was a thing of common occurrence, the citizens adopting this method of escaping their troubles. For this evil, however, the king devised a singular remedy, and one that has never been resorted to either before that time or since; for he ordered the bodies of all who had been thus guilty of self destruction to be fastened to a cross and left there as a spectacle to their fellow citizens, and a prey to birds and wild beasts. The result was, that the sense of propriety which so peculiarly attaches itself to the Roman name, and which more than once has gained a victory when the battle was all but lost, came to the rescue on this occasion as well. Though for this once the Romans were in reality its dupes, as they forgot that, though they felt shocked at the thoughts of such ignominy while alive, they would be quite insensible to any such disgrace when dead. It is said that Tarquinius made these sewers of dimensions sufficiently large to admit a wagon laden with hay passing along them. All that we have just described, however, is but trifling when placed in comparison with one marvelous fact, which I must not omit to mention before I pass on to other subjects. In the consulship of Marcus Lepidus and Quintus Catullus, there was not at Rome, as we learn from one of the most trustworthy authors, a finer house than the one which belonged to Lepidus himself, and yet by Hercules. Within five and thirty years from that period, the very same house did not hold the hundredth rank even in the city. Let a person, if he will, in taking this fact into consideration, only calculate the vast masses of marble, the productions of painters, the regal treasures that must have been expended in bringing these hundred mansions to vie with one that had been in its day the most sumptuous and the most celebrated in all the city." and then let him reflect how, that since that period, and down to the present time, these houses have all of them been surpassed by others without number. There can be no doubt that conflagrations are a punishment inflicted upon us for our luxury, but such are our habits, that in spite of such warnings as these, we cannot be made to understand that there are things in existence more perishable even than man himself." but there are still two other mansions by which these edifices have been eclipsed. Twice have we seen the whole city environed by the palaces of the emperors Caius and Nero, that of the last that nothing might be wanting to its magnificence being coated with gold. Surely such palaces as these must have been intended for the abode of those who created this mighty empire, and who left the plough or their native hearth to go forth to conquer nations, and to return laden with triumphs men, in fact, whose very fields even occupied less space than the audience chambers of these palaces. Indeed, one cannot but help reflecting how trifling a portion of these palaces was equal to the sites which the Republic granted to its invincible generals for the erection of their dwellings. The supreme honor, too, attendant upon these grants, as is the case of Publius Valerius Publicola, the first consul, with Lucius Brutus for his many meritorious services, and of his brother, who twice in one councilship defeated the Sabines, was the permission granted, by the terms of the decree, to have the doors of their houses opening from without, and the gates thrown back upon the public street. Such was the most distinguished privilege accorded in those days to triumphant mansions even. I will not permit, however, these two Caiuses, or two Neros, to enjoy this glory even, such as it is, for I will prove that these extravagant follies of theirs have been surpassed in the use that was made of his wealth by Marcus Scarus, a private citizen. Indeed, I am by no means certain that it was not the edelship of this personage that inflicted the first great blow upon the public manners, and that Sylla was not guilty of a greater crime in giving such unlimited power to his stepson than in the proscription of so many thousands. During his edelship, and only for the temporary purposes of a few days, Scarus executed the greatest work that has ever been made by the hands of man, even when intended to be of everlasting duration—his theater, I mean. This building consisted of three stories, supported upon 360 columns, and this, too, in a city which had not allowed, with some censure, one of its greatest citizens to erect six pillars of Hymetian marble. The ground story was of marble, the second of glass, a species of luxury which ever since that time has been quite unheard of, and the highest of gilded wood. The lowermost columns, as previously stated, were 8 and 30 feet in height, and, placed between these columns, as already mentioned, were brazen statues, 3,000 in number. The area of this theater afforded accommodation for 80,000 spectators and yet the theatre of Pompeius, after the city had so greatly increased, and the inhabitants had become so vastly more numerous, was considered abundantly large, with its sittings for forty thousand only. The rest of the fittings of it, what with the Attalic vestments, pictures, and other stage properties, were of such enormous value, that after Scarus had conveyed to his Tusculan villa such parts thereof as were not required for the enjoyment of his daily luxuries, The loss was no less than three hundred millions of sesterces when the villa was burnt by his servants in a spirit of revenge. The consideration of such prodigality as this quite distracts my attention and compels me to digress from my original purpose in order to mention a still greater instance of extravagance in reference to wood. Gaius Curio, who died during the civil wars fighting on the side of Caesar, found, to his dismay, That he could not, when celebrating the funeral games in honor of his father, surpass the riches and magnificence of Scarus. For where, in fact, was to be found such a step sire as Scylla, and such a mother as Metella, that bidder at all auctions for the property of the proscribed? Where, too, was he to find for his father, Marcus Scarus, so long as the principal man in the city, and the one who had acted, in his alliance with Marius, as a receptacle for the plunder of the whole provinces? Indeed, Scarus himself was no longer able to rival himself, and it was at least one advantage which he derived from this destruction by fire of so many objects brought from all parts of the earth that no one could ever after be his equal in this species of folly. Curio, consequently, found himself compelled to fall back upon his own resources and to think of some new device of his own. It's really worth our while to know what this device was if only to congratulate ourselves upon the manners of the present day, and to reverse the ordinary mode of expression, and term ourselves the men of the olden time. He caused to be erected, close together, two theatres of very large dimensions, and built of wood, each of them nicely poised, and turning on a pivot. Before midday, a spectacle of games was exhibited in each, the theatres being turned back to back, in order that the noise of neither of them might interfere with what was going on in the other. Then, in the latter part of the day, all on a sudden, the two theatres were swung round, and the corners uniting, brought face to face, the outer frames too were removed, and thus an amphitheatre was formed, in which combats of gladiators were presented to the view, men whose safety was almost less compromised than was that of the Roman people in allowing itself to be thus whirled round from side to side. Now, in this case, which have we most reason to admire? The inventor? Or the invention, the artist, or the author of the project, him who first dared to think of such an enterprise, or him who ventured to undertake it, him who obeyed the order, or him who gave it. But the thing that surpasses all is the frenzy that must have possessed the public to take their seats in a place which must, of necessity, have been so unsubstantial and so insecure. Lo and behold, here is a people that has conquered the whole earth that has subdued the universe, that divides spoils of kingdoms and of nations, that sends its laws to foreign lands, that shares in some degree the attributes of the immortal gods in common with mankind, suspended aloft in a machine, and showering plaudits even upon its own peril. This is indeed holding life cheap. And can we, after this, complain of our disasters at Cana? How vast the catastrophe that might have ensued! When cities are swallowed up by an earthquake, it is looked upon by mankind as a general calamity. And yet here have we the whole Roman people, embarked, so to say, in two ships, and sitting suspended on a couple of pivots. The grand spectacle being its own struggle with danger, and its liability to perish at any moment that the overstrained machinery may give way. And then the object, too, of all this, that public favor may be conciliated for the tribunes' harangues at a future day and that, at the rostra, he may still have the power of shaking the tribes, nicely balanced as they are. And really, what may he not dare with those who, at his persuasion, have braved such perils as these? Indeed, to confess the truth, at the funeral games celebrated at the tomb of his father, it was no less than the whole Roman people that shared the dangers of the gladiatorial combats, When the pivots had now been sufficiently worked and wearied, he gave another turn to his magnificent displays, for, upon the last day, still preserving the form of the amphitheatre, he cut the stage in two through the middle, and exhibited a spectacle of athletes, after which, the stage being suddenly withdrawn on either side, he exhibited a combat, upon the same day, between such of the gladiators as had previously proved victorious, and yet, with all this, Curio was no king." no ruler of the destinies of a nation, nor yet a person remarkable for his own opulence even, seeing that he possessed no resources of his own beyond what he could realize from the discord between the leading men. But now let us turn our attention to some marvels which, justly appreciated, may be truthfully pronounced to remain unsurpassed. Quintius Marcius Rex, upon being commanded by the Senate to repair the Appian Aqueduct and those of the Anio and Tepala, constructed, during his praetorship, a new aqueduct, which bore his name, and was brought hither by a channel pierced through the sides of mountains. Agrippa, in his adelship, united the Marcian with the virgin aqueduct, and repaired and strengthened the channels of the others. He also formed 700 wells, in addition to 500 fountains, and 130 reservoirs, many of them magnificently adorned. Upon these works, too, he erected 300 statues of marble or bronze and 400 marble columns, and all of this in the space of a single year. In the work which he has written in commemoration of his edelship, he also informs us that public games were celebrated for the space of 59 days and that 170 gratuitous baths were opened. The number of these last at Rome has increased to an infinite extent since his time. The preceding aqueducts, however, have all been surpassed by the costly work which was more recently commenced by the emperor Caius and completed by Claudius. Under these princes, the curtain and Cerulean waters, with the Nuanio, were brought from a distance of forty miles and at so high a level that all the hills were supplied with water on which the city is built. The sum expended on these works was three hundred and fifty millions of sesterces. If we only take into consideration the abundant supply of water to the public for baths, ponds, canals, household purposes, gardens, places in the suburbs, and country houses, and then reflect upon the distances that are traversed, the arches that have been constructed, the mountains that have been pierced, the valleys that have been leveled, we must of necessity admit that there is nothing to be found more worthy of our admiration throughout the whole universe. Among the most memorable works, too, I, for my own part, should include another undertaking of the Emperor Claudius, though it was afterwards abandoned in consequence of the hatred borne him by his successor. I mean the channel that was cut through a mountain as an emissary for Lake Fusinus, a work which cost a sum beyond all calculation and employed a countless multitude of workmen for many years. In these parts, where the soil was found to be tereris, it was necessary to pump up the water by the aid of machinery. In other parts, again, the solid rock had to be hewn through. All this, too, had to be done in the midst of darkness within, a series of operations which can only be adequately conceived by those who are witnesses of them, and which no human language can possibly describe. I pass in silence the harbor that has been formed at Ostia, the various roads, too, that have been cut across mountains, the Tyrrhenian Sea separated by an embankment from Lake Lucrinus, and vast numbers of bridges constructed at an enormous expense. Among the many other marvels, too, of Italy, we are informed by Papyrius Fabianus, a most diligent inquirer into the operations of nature, that the marble there grows in the quarries, and those who work in the quarries assure us that the wounds thus inflicted upon the mountains fill up spontaneously. If such is the fact, luxury has good grounds for hoping that it will never be at a loss for a supply of materials for its gratification. End of section 31